Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive. All right. I love it when technology does what you expect. This is awesome. Good morning. We are live. <clears throat> this is Rachel Marshall and Bruce Weiner, and we are the Money Advantage Podcast. <laughs> and we're going to be talking to you again today. We have another show for you. We're unpacking part two of Becoming Your Own Banker. And this book is the original text, almost like the founding document or the... Um, the Bible on infinite banking, if you will. And so today, what we're going to be doing is going back to that original book by Nelson Nash and just unpacking the next portion of the book. This has been something that's been transformative in my life and Bruce, your life as well. I know we've both read the book multiple times and continue to find new nuggets as we read it and reread it. And it's just amazing how we can continue to go back to the fundamentals and truly understand them, share them with other people, and be able to make decisions more effectively. So before we dive into where we're at today, um, what's on your mind, Bruce? Well, I was just saying that, the, you know, the, the thing about this is, is it's, um, I find it to be something that is an aha moment for a lot of people. Um, I don't know how many times over my career people have said to me, you know, I picked this book up before, or somebody gave me this book, and I didn't really read it. And then one day I saw it and I decided to read it. And I'm like, well, I don't really understand. It's kind of folksy. It's got some good wisdom in it, but I don't quite get it. And um, then if, then one day, all of a sudden, they there's an aha moment. They say, I think this is what they was talking about in the book. And then they go back and they read it again. And I know many practitioners, including myself, I don't know how many times I've read it and reread it and um but it is, there's something in it. It's almost like the Bible, you know, there's something in it that hits your heart at any one given time. And it's just a really neat place for people to start, you know, trying to figure out if this is something that I think everybody should um, implement this into their lives, but not everybody is willing to implement this into their lives. And so it's a really good start. And to start the, uh, Bruce, start the podcast. Just real quick, I love that you said everyone should, everyone's not necessarily willing. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, exercise. Well, we all should exercise. It's not necessarily that we should all do the same exact kind of exercise. We should all eat a healthy diet. Well, maybe that looks a little different from person to person. But I mean, it's logical and reasonable to say everyone should do these things. Everyone should. But at the same time, it may not necessarily look the same from person to person. And not necessarily is everyone in a place that's ready for that. So I love that you brought that up. So as we start the this particular podcast and, and some of Nelson's wisdom, we finished the last one talking about how he had the light bulb came on when he was over leveraged with his 23% um, commercial uh, loan. And then he realized that the only thing that hinders how much you can actually borrow from the life insurance company is how much you actually capitalize the life insurance company. So how much you put in. And, you know, I think that's analogous. Again, if we think of this as an asset, 
We think of this as a piece of real estate, which is an asset. You can borrow against your real estate how much, according to how much you actually paid your real estate off. Mm-hmm. And it's a very similar concept. The more you put in to this um, contract, the more you can borrow against it. And the more you put in, the more compounding effect you get uh, for the rest of your life. It was really interesting to me as I saw that piece of this book where he had that epiphany moment and he really said, look, I can borrow from this life insurance policy. Okay, now I have a choice to make. He's realizing what I've done without even necessarily realizing what I did was I created this source of capital for myself to be able to access at lower interest rates than the bank is able to provide. And the only thing that's preventing me from getting as much capital as possible from here is that I didn't really understand the reason why I was doing it before in terms of being able to use this money. I mean, he knew he was buying life insurance. Obviously, he wasn't, you know, dull or anything. I mean, he knew he was purchasing life insurance. What he hadn't realized before, though, was the power of having the cash value accessible to be able to access through a policy loan. And and that that was available for him to use for anything at any time, and he could always access it. So when he realized, hey, the limit on my ability at this time is the amount I put in, well, now I have this desire to put a lot more in. He he said he was used to paying premiums already, and he actually said he was already accustomed to paying very large premiums. And he said if he had not been already used to paying large premiums, he probably would not have seen the message. I think that's that's profound already. So he'd already been, ta- I mean, you could even say taxing his financial position to pay very large premiums into something that he was thinking, well, this is just for the death benefit that's going to pay out when I pass away, that's going to take care of my family. Well, he'd been used to paying the premiums. Now he's realizing, well, hey, I could just pay more premiums and then I can have more cash value available. And now he has this confrontation or this dilemma to say, well, what am I going to do now? I have this $500,000 loan I need to pay off. And I want to start funding a lot more premium into infinite banking or into whole life insurance so that I can increase my pool of capital that I can access. How do I do both? And so he's confronted with probably the same exact challenge that everyone is in when they realize, I would love to put as much premium dollars into whole life insurance as possible. How do I do that given my current set of circumstances? And he said, honest introspection revealed that I could revise my spending pattern. And what evolved out of that is he said, maybe you have found yourself in such a financial prison. Now that's strong language. Maybe you're in a financial prison or maybe you're just in a financial position that you would like to improve. And he said, um, maybe you want to develop a system that will keep you out. Maybe you just want to stay out of a position of being um, limited and constricted by the choices and the access to capital that you have available to you. Maybe your problem is bigger or smaller than his currently was. And the the same principles apply to him, to Nelson Nash, to us who are using infinite banking, to those who want to use infinite banking, and it un- requires understanding of those principles. And so he then stretches the mind, stretches his mind and our minds and says, really, all of life is an exercise in imagination. And so Bruce, before we jump into that, exercise and imagination. Is there anything that you would like to share just kind of on that that pivot point that Nelson had and how that applies to uh, many of the clients that we talk to? 
Well, I think what ha- what ends up happening is, once again, I think people always are looking for what is the next great investment. And Nelson doesn't have a problem with investment. Obviously, he was investing in a commercial piece of commercial real estate. But what he says is that our our need for financing is greater than our need for everything else that we have. So as long as you take the banking function into your own hands, and the only way you can do that is by capitalizing. We were we were talking about this in the office this morning, um, that people, even people in the banking industry themselves, the tellers, a lot of vice presidents, and actually some of the presidents of bank uh, offices, locations, do not even know how a bank actually makes money. They do not understand the reser- um, the 10% reserve banking that they do, um, that they are actually trying to attract money into their bank so that they can loan it at a higher rate and make the arbitrage in that. Now, I, I know that seems surprising to some people, uh, but we actually experienced this in 2008 when Carlos Lara of the Nelson Nash Institute actually went around and did did presentations to uh, different people in the banking industry. And he was flabbergasted how they didn't realize how fractional reserve banking uh, actually worked. And so that that then that comes into not only Nelson's imagination, but your imagination on how you're going to use this. And that's one of the reasons Nelson um, named this infinite, because there's an infinite way to actually do this. So just think about your imagination. Open your eyes. It's, it's not an investment. It's a way to store capital for your everyday needs and your everyday financing needs. I love that he also mentioned that it takes discipline to implement. So first, we're going to talk about the imagination because it's all about a thought process and getting your mindset in a position to be able to see the capability and the possibility of what you can do in your financial life and to recognize strategies and tools that will help you do that even better. And then once you have the mindset right and you are aware of what you can do, it does take discipline to do anything well, to follow through with what you've decided to do. So I love that he uses an Albert Einstein quote here at the top of the next chapter. If you are following along or if you have a book of your own, this is, I don't know if the page numbers have been revised. I know that there's different um, Different editions of, yeah. So I'm not even sure which edition I have. This is page 14. Uh I have mine on 14 as well. So he says here, imagination is more important than knowledge. Now, I just want to pause there for a second because I think so many times we celebrate knowledge. We think that infinite or that knowledge is the most important thing, that we have to um, know the right thing, that we have to understand how something works. But I think we can get limited because there is so much knowledge available in the world. And Bruce, you always say a quote that's very related. It's about knowledge and wisdom. What's what's the difference? I always say there's a lot of there's a lot of information on the internet. There's just not a lot of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And um, in the '70s, I'm old enough to remember this. There was um, a quote by the Wall Street Journal. It was, it was one of their advertising things. They would say that knowledge is not power, but knowing where to find it is. Mm. And I think that is very 
I mean, this, we're talking the 70s here because, you know, that, that, that was trying to get people to buy Wall Street journals. Now, you know, we have we have information at our fingertips all the time. And so Where do you find it. Google, right? Um, so we can find out knowledge all the time or facts all the time, hopefully facts. Uh, but That's how, true. how do you apply these now comes down to your imagination and what works for you. I think that piece is so important. I mean, we can get so stuck on, I have to know the right thing. I have to do it right. It's not necessarily about following a prescription and making sure that you do all the right action steps. It's really about how you think and how you imagine and how you take ownership of something or take ownership of that knowledge and use it with your imagination. So that's the starting point of this um, this chapter. Then he says the infinite banking concept is an exercise in imagination, reason, logic, and prophecy. I think that's fascinating as well. He's thinking towards the future. He's also using very sound, rational thinking um, and having an imagination to recognize that you need to see things differently. And so there's all of those components in what we're going to talk about. Um, then he kind of goes into this whole exercise about um, a G- German schoolmaster in the late 1700s. And this was fascinating. So I, I'm going to go ahead and um, just share a little bit about this. So he, this German schoolmaster was um, trying to give the boys an assignment um, so that they would quiet down. And he asked them to add up all the numbers from one through 100. And so a bunch of the boys are scribbling down and working on their slates and they're adding up all the numbers, which I can, you can imagine one plus two plus three plus four plus five. I mean, tedious, right? So it's supposed to take them a long time. One boy is just staring out the window, looking like he's totally not even connected with the assignment. He's not focused on his work. He's not doing anything worthwhile. And all of a sudden he writes down a number, he shares his number and no one else is even close to finished with the assignment. And he has the right answer. And he's the only one with the right answer. And so the schoolmaster said, okay, well, how did you solve this? And he said, well, I visualized. This is why Nelson is talking about this exercise in imagination. I visualized a number line from one to 100. And I found the midpoint, which was 50. Then I folded the number line in half. So here's my number line. I folded it in half. And I realized that the numbers are all matching up, 50 and 51. Well, that makes 101. 49 and... 52. Well, that makes 101. And every pair makes 101. Well, I realized there's 101 times 50 of those. Well, the number that is the answer is. Yeah, 101 five, five was 5,050. 5,050. Yeah, it was 101 times 50. Yes. At 101, he had 50 pairs of 101. There you go. So, A amazing you could you could say well that's a really genius way to think about something i mean it's also a rule numbers are going to work this way but normally if we're told to do something we think about it incrementally and we just do the same process that we've always done before instead he thought outside the box he used his imagination and he came up with a way to solve this math problem now don't feel bad if you're not um coming up with new ways to solve math problems this guy was um carl gauss i don't i've never heard of him before i don't know if you have bruce um, but apparently he was a, one of the greatest mathematicians of all time. So, mm. but the point was here that Nelson brings up, he did not, Gauss did not invent this strategy. He discovered something that already existed 
And then he was able to understand a fixed relationship and that nothing can be done to change that fixed relationship. And then he said, well, how can I operate? How can I use this fixed relationship and understand it in a way that I can find the answer? And actually then um, he talks about pi and how we can't change pi. Um, but um, what was actually really cool about this is we can understand there's a shortcut in getting the answer. And Nelson shares this in his book. I don't know if we should um, continue to dive through that. But if you want more details about how to add up any string of numbers, there is a clue on page 14 in Nelson Nash's book, and it is accurate and it's fixed. So um, there you go. Bruce, the next thing that he really does is says, okay, well, if we just need to understand fixed relationships and we need to understand how numbers work, and then be able to use and apply our imagination. Then he goes into this imagination story uh, or imagination exercise of the grocery store. Do you want to go ahead and kind of unpack what I would, is I going would love this Because I actually worked in a grocery store when I was a young boy. And so I understand this example greatly. And I've also made some uh, comments to this. Uh, for everybody listening, um, if you want to get... Um, more of an entrepreneurial mindset, you have to understand how basic business works. And this is this is the greatest example of this for the grocery store exercise that Nelson has in his book. And just to give you a little background, when I was working at a grocery store, I worked at the Rose, Rosers Five and Dime in my hometown. And it was the place that everybody, little kid was in awe of because, you know, growing up, in a simple, in a simpler time, you know, we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have Instagram, we didn't even have DVRs or anything like that. But one of the greatest thing, and we didn't have Amazon where you just order things and come to your house. One of the greatest things was to be able to walk to this uh, five and dime, um, which which was which stood for uh, nickels and and dimes. So uh, it's very inexpensive back there. We can't imagine that with inflation now. Oh no, I'm sure it's like $5 to $10 now. And uh, and they, it was a grocery store, plus it was kind of a convenience uh, store. And so there's a lot of, you know, the candies and, and little small trinkets and so on and so forth. So imagine a little kid walking in there. They also had a grocery store. And I can remember the Rosier family because it was family owned. They were always very scurrying around making sure all the customers were happy and asking that they could help them. They were always fronting shelves. Now, fronting shelves is, is talked about. We're going to get into that a little bit more clearly, but I bet everybody that's listening can relate to this from their own home. So like if you go somewhere at, to buy groceries, you buy groceries, you come home, you still may have some food items of the same type at home. Well, you want to use the older food items first, and then you take the ones you just bought and put them behind those. Mm -hmm. Some system. Grocery stores do that all the time. It's called fronting, it's called fronting shelves. You take the cans or the boxes or whatever packages and you move them from the back to the front, and you put the new items behind. You do it for a couple of reasons. One, obviously, is for freshness, but you also want to make the grocery store appear like it is 
full the entire time. And we had this during the COVID pandemic. I don't know when people are going to be actually listening to this, but during the COVID pandemic, there was a rush of going to grocery stores and buying the grocery stores out. What happens in that situation is people just say, well, I'm not even going to try to go to a grocery store because they're already out because I can see they don't have a lot. And so grocery stores work really, really hard to appear that they have more items than they actually have so that people feel like every time they come in, they're going to actually get what they need. So that was the experience that I had as we go through this. So I've actually lived this. And then as I've owned businesses across um, over my a time period of my life, you you actually understand margins and so on and so forth. So as we go through that, just kind of think about your own experience going to a grocery store, and you'll really relate this very, very well. So Bruce, I love that you share that fronting the shelves. I don't know if we called it that, but when I worked at Target, we did the same thing, having to restock. And it also looks prettier if you have, if you look down an aisle and there's not like gaping like missing teeth, if if you will, like looking down the aisle of the shelf, you really want to have everything full and pulled forward. So what Nelson starts here with this grocery store example is he said, you're going to imagine you are going into a business and he uses a grocery store for a specific reason, because he says, imagine you are not only the store owner, so you're the seller of a thing, but you also have a need to consume this same thing in your own life. So that's why he chose a grocery store. Everyone even the grocery store shopkeeper and the owner has a reason to go buy hamburger and buy soup and buy carrots and apples. They need to purchase food items. And if you own a grocery store, where are you going to go? I mean, you could go to your competitor next door and go buy their food, but why in the world would you do that? Because you can benefit your own store and you can shop at your own store. So in this case, a grocery store works like a perfect example. So He started then by talking about if you were going to open a grocery store, Bruce, can you talk about just the capital that would be needed in order to do this? Yeah, thanks. And I also have, um, I live in St. Louis most of the year, and we're very fortunate to have two major grocery chains that are privately held by families in St. Louis. And and one's called Schnucks and one's called Deerberg's. And they have... We, the the consumers or the the population of the St. Louis area actually benefits from these two privately owned grocery store chains because they're always competing with each other to actually be better. And they've kept out the big um, national chains because of it. And the Snooks uh, is owned by, currently owned by the six Snooks uh, uh, children because it's multi-generational. And we are fortunate enough, my wife and I are fortunate enough to know one of the the daughters. And we often, and they live in our area. And when we go to Snooks, we often run into Nancy. And Nancy is, and her husband, Don, they're actually going down the aisles, getting their groceries like everybody else. And we talk about the grocery uh, business quite a bit. What people don't realize is that the first thing for a uh, grocery store must have is a great location. And that makes sense because people don't want to drive um, 
to long distances to get their um, produce and things. Because a lot of people like to to actually purchase things like produce and vegetables and meats so, uh, on a daily basis or on an every other day basis. So they want their grocery store to be closed. So you have to buy great real estate that is that is very valuable. It's convenient too. I mean, especially imagine, well, I mean, if you're a mom con- with a bunch of kids and here you are running all these errands and I've got 15 things I need to do and I need to stop at the grocery store. I don't want to drive 45 minutes across town to do that one errand where everything else is local to where I live. Right. It's valuable because it's convenient. Then you have to build this really nice store and then you have to um, appoint the store on the inside very, very nicely. And nowadays, if you go into grocery stores, you can see that they have, they don't just have concrete floors like they used to. They actually have nice, uh, maybe vinyl planking, or even if they have concrete, they've actually have it stamped and and they have it uh, dyed and all these other things. The lighting is really important nowadays and how they arrange the store to make it very, very pleasant. All that takes huge amount of capital to get going. So before you earn $1, you have to uh, purchase the land, build the building, and then appoint the store with shelves and and electronic cash registers and so forth. And then you have to buy the inventory to put inside the the store. And so, so I have a- no idea what the cost of this would actually be, um, but I'm sure we're talking in the ballpark of millions at this point. Oh, millions before. of dollars, absolutely. Yeah, millions of dollars, absolutely. The great thing about it is that, and and McDonald's is another example of this, and is the real estate is valuable. It's valuable in in not only having the capital to leverage borrowing from the banks, but it also is an access that can be depreciated for tax purposes. So real estate and then also grocery store attracts a lot of traffic. So what they do then is they buy even greater pieces of real estate and they put ancillary businesses around it. Now, they just rent it out to these people, but now you're going to see clothing places. You're going to see pharmacies. You're going to see other places to eat. You're going to see yoga places, places where- Starbucks. Yeah, Starbucks. Well, a lot of times Starbucks are now inside the grocery store. And so the idea is somebody says, oh, I'm going to go to yoga. Oh, I go to yoga. Oh, this is really good because now I can just leave yoga and go get dinner for the family tonight. And they're right there. Mm-hmm. And the the people that own the grocery stores are making revenue from leasing out all these other places of business. So there is a lot into the business of being a grocery store to just get started. Well, and you could also say, well, why do they need to do all of that? Why do they need a great location? Why do they need a great building? Why do they need good lighting? Why do they need beautiful flooring? Why do they need the good arrangement? I mean, you could just slap something together and, you know, hope everything works out. But if you are ultimately going into business for the purpose of making profit, then you're going to have a strong need to attract customers and provide them something that they're not getting somewhere else, which means you have to be better than your competition in at least one of these areas. You have to have better prices or you have to have better quality or somehow be more convenient. You have to do something better to have that competitive edge and really have a purpose or a reason to exist in the marketplace to draw the clientele and have some more market share. Yeah. And um, the, other, the other thing that I think Nelson hits upon, 
he talks about you have to do all this and you have to have competitive prices um, to get people to actually uh, come into your store. Now, competitive prices doesn't mean you have to have the lowest price. And that is, I can give you an example in my own life where there are some other like smaller chains of grocery stores in my area. My wife refuses to go to those because they I would consider them discount places. And they're simply a rectangular building. They take the groceries they in the in the original box, they just open up the box and just lay the groceries with the box on the shelves. It's very industrial feeling. You walk in, you grab it, and then you go, you go out with it. They have lower prices, but they don't have everything, and the feel is very generic. Mm-hmm. So price competitive doesn't mean the lowest price all the time. It means competitive for the experience that you are receiving. Yes. So that has to be monitored all the time, too. And yes. one of those things is, is that you, you're willing to pay a little bit more if you know you're going to get a lot of variety or, or a nice experience. So or if Nelson, you know that you're going to be able to get your whole list at one location rather than driving around to 15 right. different stores and maybe potentially finding what you needed for dinner. Correct. And that particular chain doesn't have employees out on the floor uh, stocking and fronting the shelves and helping people find things where in a major grocery store, the experiences you're looking around, there's people around fronting the shelves, they're putting, and they can help you when you say, hey, where is the sugar or where is this? So you're willing to pay a little bit more for that type of experience on your time. And Nelson mentions that. He says, employees must be attentive to customer needs, be courteous and neat. Um, So all this is an ongoing cost before you even open the front door for customers. And then he goes on to talk about, then you come in, you load your carts with groceries, you take them to the cashier who collects their money in the front of the store. This is going to leave a lot of spaces in the store displays empty. And that's where I was just talking about, you have the hired help that comes in and it's imperative that they front the shelves for freshness, but also, like you said, Rachel, at Target, you want everything to kind of look nice and neat because it's more appealing to the eye. And when you do that, people are going to continually to patronize your store. So, um, or they're going to take your business somewhere else and hopefully get that a better experience. So that's where that competition comes in. So the, the objective of the business is to provide you with an income. So that's what well, the person that owns that business, they want an income. That's why you start a business, okay? And you want to build that business. Usually you build that business with the idea that you're eventually going to sell the business. Now that's kind of really important for people to understand as we go through this. Through this. Any business idea is first, you're going to provide current income and then you're going to sell it. Now, I know somebody on listening to the podcast may be saying, well, wait a minute. I know a lot of people that just give it to the next generation. Um, most of them don't just give it to the next generation. They pass it on to the next generation, and then the gen- that generation runs it. They might not sell it all out right then, but they then pay 
the first generation a dividend not to work in the store anymore. They're just paying them. So essentially, they're selling it in increments along their lifetime. And you so would that, say, well, how is that fair? Well, the, the person who began the business put all of that upfront capital. They did all of this, this work to accelerate to the point of making something profitable and a high value. And so there's a tremendous financial um, debt that is owed to that person. I mean, they, they, they have earned that by building the business. And so it makes sense. And it's been my experience that this is becoming less and less as it's getting passed on to the next generation. And uh, many times it's because the, the business owner for the first time in that particular family's generational uh, lives, that they actually have some money. And so the, the generation two actually then get higher education. They move into other things than other than owning the business. Although, you know, many people could argue only the business is the greatest way to actually build wealth, but they don't live in the business. So then you have to have an outside, you have to have an outside buyer. Well, in order to have an outside buyer, they look at the performance of the business, the balance sheet, the profit and loss statement. So you want that profit and loss statement to look as good as possible. You want it to look like at the end of the day, it's very, very profitable. Now, I know people are saying, well, of course, that's the objective of a business. But the business also has a tremendous amount of, of write-offs as far as depreciation, as far as all their expenses that they have, that goes on to the, the, the K-1 that you pay taxes on. And that K-1, you can actually get down very, very low so you don't pay as much taxes. And once again, I can hear some people screaming, yeah, those bad businesses, they're always trying to avoid taxes and so on and so forth. No, remember the tax code is a series of incentives to actually, for Congress to actually get what they want here in the United States. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to incent people to start small businesses because small businesses give people a place to work. They provide goods and services and so on and so forth. So it makes, it would make sense. So then when you're looking at the profits of the business, you're also then looking at what can, or they're called addbacks. What can I add back into that profit to, that shows the true cash flow? And those would be deductions out of the business. But if that profit is, is very, very low, what ends up happening then when you have a buyer, the buyer comes in and says, okay, I'm going to be putting down millions of dollars to buy this potential business. Where, how am I going to pay off my capital expenditure, whether it's, it's from the money that I've accumulated and I'm just paying cash for it or money I'm going to borrow? And so they have, to, they have to look at this balance sheet and make sure it's okay. And then they have to look at the profit and loss statement and say, oh, yeah, I'm making X amount of profit. I would be willing to take 50% of that or 60% of that or 70% of that, or some cases 90% of that, or maybe even 100% if they have other cash flow to live off of. And I'd be able to pay off my loan in a certain period of time. And then I will have the cash flow from that business. Well, obviously, if you're not as profitable, then that person isn't going to pay you as much for that business. Mm -hmm. And so you need to make your profit and loss statement look as 
as good as possible. That is a a audited uh, financial that says this is what a buyer should expect. Well, then Nelson goes to say, if that is true, then one, you want your profit to be as high as possible so that you can have the highest cash flow as possible for you now, but also the highest selling point later on. And this is good for any business. This is not just the grocery store, but it's it's a great example because everybody uses the grocery store. So that Nelson says, once you get all this set up in the operation, there's a difference between the back door and the front door, whether you're going to make a good living. I understand this 100% because I actually own several businesses. Um, one was a restaurant, um, craft beer. I've also owned a auto auto repair place. My father owned an auto repair place. And we understood that you have to model this in front of your employees. So you can't just go and grab something from the restaurant and then just go sit down and drink it or eat it and then walk out the back where your car is and leave and not pay. So whenever we did the same way with the car repair, we brought the car in, you did the brake job or whatever, you had the employees do the brake job and you paid at the at the cash register. And in fact, you made sure you knew all the employees that you paid. Bruce, can I, sh- I want to share a piece of this that I think um, will help the understanding. So when you are purchasing supplies for your grocery store, you're going to pay less in wholesale price for the inventory that you stock in the back. So that's going to cost you money. And then you sell it out the front door. The difference between your wholesale cost and the retail price you sell it for is your margin. Now, this was fascinating that Nelson shares in this book, and I know this to be true as well. You can look at the revenue of a Target store, of a grocery store, and realize, well, they're making, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands in a day. And at the same time, you realize, well, that's not all profit. That is revenue, but you have to take out the expenses. And one of the expenses that you have to take out is all the capital, the upfront costs that we've talked about. And so it's going to take a lot a lot of sales to recoup that initial capital expenditure. But if you just look at the at one item, so instead of looking at the whole business, if you just look at one item, it comes in the back door. Let's say Nelson gives numbers to this, your can of peas. The, the reason we titled this particular episode, Don't Steal the Peas, is because this piece of the grocery store example is super important. So the can of peas comes in the back door. You have paid, say, 57 cents for that can of peas, and you're going to sell it off the shelf through the front door for 60 cents. Now, that's only a three cent margin. It is not, you're not doubling the price. You're not buying it for two cents and selling it for $3. There's a very small margin on this can of peas, as with many other products that are in the grocery store. They're looking in many cases for volume, not necessarily. And then there's different products that have different price margin as well. So it's not all the same. But in this particular case, we're looking at a can of peas. So you could say, then this comes back to where you were with the the restaurant. You could say, well, I own this grocery store. I have options, right? I don't necessarily have to pay 60 cents for it at the front cash register because I bought it to begin with. But the challenge is, and there's a lot of pieces to this, but the challenge is 
If you buy something for 57 cents and you sell it for 60, there's only a three cent margin. Nelson talks about how you have to have a turn. You have to sell 15 um, cans of peas just to break even. He's talking about you have to turn your inventory 15 times before you have covered your capital, your upfront cost. But if you're just looking at that one can of peas, you're only making three cents. I think you've got to sell 20 cans correct? times 20 to make the 60 cents of the of the the sale price, the retail price. You could say, well, I could just take this can of peas out the back door, meaning I could just walk out and the store is now at a loss of 57 cents. Well, that's one option. That's going to be terrible for your profitability today and for the sale price that you have in the future. Or you could say, well, I could just pay retail or wholesale price for this. Why don't I just pay the store 57 cents? And, and, you know, that's the cost the grocery store got it for. I'm the owner. I can, I have the liberty to do what I want. I don't have to pay, you know, the marked up price. So I'm just going to pay 57 cents. Or you could say, well, I'm going to go ahead and take it through the cash register, or you could have actually pay more for that can of peas than 60 cents. So Bruce, do you want to talk just a little bit about the math of why taking the can out the back door or stealing it just, just, like completely devastates your profit margin. Yeah, because if you if you think about it, if you're if your fixed cost of 57 cents for a can of peas and you take one can out the back, well, that means that you have to replace that 57 that 57 cents with the profit margin of three cents. Yes. 57 and 60. So that's three cents. Well, that three cents has to then that profit margin margin has to be turned over a bunch of times, which which is uh, I believe nineteen times. So you have to sell nineteen peas cans of peas just to break even for that one can of peas that was stolen out the back. That's fascinating, that's isn't phenomenal it? Phenomenal when you start thinking about it. So well, because then who's going to pay the price of your theft? Well, right. you have to oh. have nineteen customers to come in to purchase that item because of the one that you took out that's a lot of people you have to attract and and customers who now have to pay for that loss more more businesses fail for this reason than any other thing because of because the business owner feels like well you know it's my business so i can just take this out at retail and i don't have to worry about it and that that in itself causes financial strain but the ancillary cost, you ask any retail person, one of their biggest loss, losses is employee theft. Now, I know there's a lot of people out there that think that, you know, everybody is the greatest person in the world and so on and so forth, and nobody ever steals and so on and so forth. But the fact of the matter is, in a retail environment, and I'm sure this was true, you talked about this when you were at Target all the time, is the shoplifting theft is one thing, but employee theft is a lot easier to do because they have access to the inventory in places where there's not a lot of eyes. And then they can- And to the computers. Yes. And to Mm -hmm. the computers and to Mm -hmm. the cash registers and so on and so forth. So you're, as a retail um, customer, then you have to then pay for all this theft. And that means the grocery prices have to go up. So the retail customer uh, pays for it, but they can't pay for all of it because eventually they won't come to your place if you're not paying attention to your your theft. 
So Nelson says, if you have to pay attention to your theft in your own store, you ought to be able, you ought to pay attention to theft in your own life. And that theft would be interest rates that you're paying. So he gives a little example of the fixed cost. Everybody needs to cover their fixed costs first. And the fixed costs in most businesses are their lease or their mortgage for the building, their utilities, their insurances, their uh, cost to any kind of um, thing that we talk about, long-term depreciation. And then you have variable cost. And variable cost, there's a, a point where the variable cost can cover a certain amount. A variable cost would be like the um, labor. It would be the cost uh, that some costs go up, such as um, additional uh, utility costs. If you have to um, have more people in your store, then you have more heat. So then more cooling has to take place, so on and so forth. But that's always good. But once you pass those fixed costs, then profit levels explode because it doesn't make you have the same fixed cost whether you have 10 customers or a thousand customers. So then that is how businesses really become profitable. So at turning the inventory because they've overcome their fixed cost. He actually relates that to the power in physics of boiling water and how much energy it takes to get up to the boiling point. And then as soon as you hit the boiling point, you the whatever your your water your pail of water explodes with energy and it's similar to that in your business where as soon as you hit the break even point and you've capital you've covered your fixed costs now you he he makes um a particular statement he said turn your inventory 17 times you'll be profitable if you turn the inventory 20 times per year you can retire early so basically what he's saying is that in a business, if you can just get over the hump of covering your fixed costs and your upfront capital, you get a lot of it, it takes a lot of energy to get over that hump. And as soon as you pass that break even point, everything becomes much easier. And there's a tremendous amount of growth that can happen with each individual time that you turn the inventory. Yes. And he uses the uh, hot water at 210. Uh, is very, very hot, but you turn it into 212 and now become steam and steam actually can produce a tremendous amount of energy. And he says, that's like getting over your fixed costs. For people that don't know, uh, when we produce electricity, we do it from most of the time from steam steam turbines, either from the from the from nuclear power, from coal, from natural gas that actually tur- turns water into steam. And that steam actually is so powerful it can turn these turbine fan blades to produce electricity. So that's even more, but that only happens at 212. At 210, it's very, very hot. At 211, it's a lot hotter, but it's still not steam. At 212 is when you get the really, the power to actually produce electricity. You can't produce any electricity at 211 because it's not powerful. Fascinating. I did not realize that. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So, We've kind of set all this up. We're getting uh, towards the end now. The other thing that people try to do is they say, well, I don't want to be too profitable because I don't want to pay, as as Nelson says, your partner, the IRS, United States government. So people are always trying to keep their profit levels down so they can pay less taxes. Well, that's a pretty good goal. 
and most businesses do it legally. However, then um, if you're doing it though by stealing the peas, then when you go to sell, you're actually hurting yourself more than potentially by paying the extra taxes because people can actually see the taxes as a fixed cost, but and they can understand that your profits are going to reflect that. So uh, Nelson encourages people one to be honest bankers so that you keep your profit levels up, even if you have to pay a little bit more in tax, and also to keep the profit levels up so that you get a greater sale price at the end. So don't take the he encourages people not to take the peas out the back door, but to pay for the peas through the front door. Now, what does this have to do with infinite banking? We're talking about infinite banking. That is a fabulous lesson, right? I think we can all learn so much from that. A, we can learn that we need to be willing to capitalize an infinite banking policy if we're going to benefit from it. Then secondly, we need to be in a position that we're willing to <clears throat> um, make wise decisions and not take out the back door. Bruce, does that specifically relate to being willing to pay interest on a policy loan? Correct. And, and this is where this comes down all the time when a person says, why do I want to pay interest to not only the life insurance company, because I don't, I wouldn't have to pay interest if I just first just pay cash. Well, that comes down to a previous thing Nelson said, you're always paying interest. You're either giving up the interest that you could earn on the money or you're paying interest to another institution. So if you can actually have your money earning interest at the same time you're paying interest, then actually you can get a compounding effect and, and it really takes off if you pay yourself interest back uh, or pay that interest off to the in, interest off to the insurance company. So this is exactly why Nelson says pay and pay for the peas in the front door. Or if you're an auto uh, place, you pay for your break jobs. If you're a restaurant, the owner pays for his meals because you have to get used to paying that capital in, paying yourself that capital back so you have it available for yourself into the future. This is all about being an honest banker and being in a position of being willing to capitalize and then being able to use that capital with integrity and making wise decisions. And then this relates as well. He mentioned, if you as the owner are stealing the peas, you're going to have more employees that are saying, well, they are, they're doing it. I'm going to do it too. And it has a ripple effect that increases your uh, employee theft. And so if you with your own infinite banking policy are saying, I really just don't even want to pay interest. You know, I'm not, I'm not wanting to be in a position of capitalizing a policy and I'm not willing to be in a position of being an honest banker and paying back my loans with interest fully, which um, you take a policy loan. You don't have to pay that back, but you do want to pay it back. And that is part of not stealing the peas as well. So you want to be in a position that anyone who you're extending a loan to is then fully repaying that loan with the full interest. We do want to wrap up here. We're close to the top of the hour. We've got a comment here on LinkedIn um, and it says, I think it goes even beyond that. You have to sell so many to catch up for the loss, but you also lose the profit on the ones you have to sell to catch up. 
I'm not sure yeah, I'm understanding a, that piece. So he said, so you never really get it back. Yes, yeah, so that's another way to think about it. Um, I, I thought maybe that was kind of self-evident, but uh, maybe it's just because I've done it so many times. But thanks for clarifying that. Yes, because if you did not have that one can of peas that left, you now would have all the profit um, that you can actually use to maybe expand. And um, that, that would be analogous to being an honest banker and buying more policies on other people in your in your in your situation. So very good comment. Thank you. And that was from Brent White on LinkedIn. So thank you so much for being with us on this show. If you have questions, go ahead and put them into the chat. We're about to wrap up this show today. Thank you for listening and following along. We're going to be continuing to cover this series on Wednesdays, usually around 10 o'clock. We do have some other shows that um, sometimes take precedence over that, but generally Wednesdays at 10 o'clock Eastern, we're going to be continuing on this series with Becoming Your Own Banker from Nelson Nash. And it's going to be a great time to be able to jump in, ask your questions, get answers to those questions, and be able to not just gain wisdom or not just gain information and knowledge, but to truly stretch your imagination to think differently about how you can take control of your financial life. So with that note, we'll go ahead and wrap up here today. If you are interested in exploring how infinite banking could work for you, we do have lots of options for that. You can go over to themoneyadvantage.com. We have a free guide that you can download. You can um, watch a video. You can read this guide and really get some more clarity on how it works. We have a course on infinite banking, and we also have the opportunity to jump into a conversation with an advisor and be able to look at your personal financial life and say, here's what's coming in. Here's what my liabilities, my expenses, my profit, my revenue, my income sources. Here's my goals financially. Here's what I have to work with. Here's what I'm trying to accomplish. What is the best strategy to do all of this well? And we help people not just with infinite banking. This is a large piece of what we help people with. But if you have questions about how taxes can be mitigated to maximize your financial control, that's a piece of what we do as well. So um, I just mentioned taxes because that was a piece that came into the conversation multiple times today. There's a way for you to think differently and create systems in your financial life to maintain control. And we help you do that. So those are some options for you. Please go ahead and like this video wherever you're watching and you can subscribe on YouTube. You can follow us on LinkedIn, on Facebook, on Twitter. I'm probably missing one. Instagram. Instagram. There you go. Um, And we would love to have you join our community, ask us questions. We love to answer your questions on these shows as well. So we'd love to um, be able to answer what's specifically on your mind. Bruce, anything before I close? No, I'd just like to uh, thank Brent. I um, I actually know him and and thanks for commenting and clarifying that because, you know, I always tell people we need to know this at a master's or doctorate level, but we need to explain it almost like a second grade level um, until people get their own master's degree. And, and uh, Brett clarified that. And so thanks a lot, Brett. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you to anyone who's commented and chimed into this conversation today. And in closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. We'll see you next time. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. 
Go to themoneyadvantage.com slash banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside. Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com. If you like this episode, make sure you subscribe and leave a review. If you have any questions or desire to speak with a qualified financial professional after listening to today's podcast, we encourage you to reach out to us at hello at themoneyadvantage.com or check us out at themoneyadvantage.com. The opinions and views expressed here are for informational purposes only. This material is educational in nature and should not be deemed as a solicitation of any specific product or service. All investments involve risk and a potential loss of principal. Kalos Capital Incorporated nor Kalos Management Incorporated offer tax or legal advice. Please consult with a tax advisor or attorney for advice regarding the impact on your portfolio. Securities offered through Kalos Capital Incorporated, member FINRA, SIPC, MSRB, and investment advisory services offered through Kalos Management Incorporated and registered investment advisor, both located at 11525 Parkwood Circle, Alpharetta, Georgia. E3 Consultants Group is not an affiliate or subsidiary of Kalos Capital Incorporated or Kalos Management Incorporated.